Hey everyone, before we start, we just want to quickly mention a few ways you can support the show. We put a lot of work into each episode, sometimes up to 40 hours, between recording, editing, mixing, composing. It's a big commitment and we really are just two guys doing this, with families and jobs. Even though we are starting to hire out other people to take on some of the work, but we don't make money from this show. So here are a few ways you can support the show if you want us to be able to produce these episodes more efficiently and with shorter breaks. We have a soundtrack on iTunes. It's called Between Us, a Psychotherapy Podcast, original soundtrack. It's a very long and boring title, but the music is good. We're proud of it, and if you like the vibe of the show, you would like putting it on in the background on a lazy Saturday morning. The second way to support us is to go to patreon.com slash between us and become a supporter. Both ways are really easy and will help us do the thing that we do. Thanks. I had a difficult day yesterday. Do you want to talk about it? Shouldn't, if a company makes a copy of every contract and then puts it in a file, in the appropriate file. Shouldn't the copy be in that file? Uh, unless, of course, it's somehow been misfiled. But misfiled? Yes, misfiled. For God's sakes, Peter, I am not telling you one single thing you don't already know. How could somebody misfile something? What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Peter. H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Peter. Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. That's all you have to do. I feel love for many of my patients, but I'm so resistant against expressing it, and I never have. I've always felt a pull away from it. Well, I would listen to that voice, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) This is Between Us. I'm John Totten. Dr. Morota, thanks so much for doing the show. My my pleasure, John. I kind of want to start with my last question, and that is... What is it that you're working on currently that has you invigorated or that you're excited about? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges currently in in analytic theory and practice is trying to figure out exactly, not exactly, but what the analyst's role truly is. You know, Hmm. what's what's the position that the analyst or, or psychoanalytic psychotherapist takes in relation to the patient that's going to be most effective, most beneficial for that person. And I think that we remain in a huge conundrum about that. I'm looking back at my papers from graduate school and reminding myself of the books and writings that were foundational. And our guest today has the most citations. In fact, her writing was some of the writing that seduced me away from a master's in divinity and towards a master's in psychology. Jesus, we should all be thankful for that change. It would have been bad. I certainly am thankful. I think what it was about the writing of Dr. Karen Maroda that changed my thinking was that she was one of the first writers I had encountered that made me realize that my own personal experience wasn't only allowed to come into a treatment, it was necessary. She has a very realistic take on what it is that we're doing in psychotherapy. Her writing encourages genuine emotional response from the therapist. When I talked to Dr. Moroda, I was feeling pretty salty towards our field. I still am. For multiple reasons. Some of them I've already mentioned on the show. I sometimes feel like our colleagues aren't very authentic. Sometimes I feel like I don't fit in because I can't muster the serious face all the time. And it's funny because we spent a lot of time in this conversation discussing psychoanalytic theory, but I never felt like I was in the theoretical performance I sometimes find myself with colleagues. In my favorite book of Dr. Moroda's, Seduction, Surrender, and Transformation, she says that, quote, 
psychoanalysis has always been an over-intellectualized process. I was so happy to talk to someone who believes this. It helps that she was willing to join me in some of my indictments of the field. There was an element in talking to Dr. Moroto where it sounded like I was inviting her to take therapists down a peg, and she would join me in that, and I gotta say, it felt pretty good. But most importantly, she was right, and excellently researched and supported. You'll hear what I'm talking about. Her name is Dr. Karin Moroda. All of her books have been profoundly influential to me and many others, and she was kind enough to talk to me from her office in Milwaukee. We've progressed from the, the two-person, you know, movement in the in the 70s and 80s, saying, "Okay, the objective person is an, is a fallacy," you know, so, and there's countertransference, including erratic countertransference and aggressive countertransference. And we move from the countertransference as the analyst's, you know, unresolved conflicts and pathology. We've moved past that to the countertransference as basically all of the analyst or therapist feelings that come up and are felt either in reverie or toward the patient, particularly toward the patient. Hmm. But we really haven't figured out what to do with that. And there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of controversy. To what extent do you reveal feelings or thoughts to the patient? To what extent do you just keep those and use them for interpretation or further thought and for formulating you know, future ideas? And now with the uh, incorporation of neuroscience confirming the ongoing unconscious to unconscious communication, we've really moved into totally embracing the notion of constant, ongoing immersion, empathic and otherwise, between patient and analyst or therapist. Yet we still have really not decided what to do with that. And I think the current discussions about enactment and broadening the concept of enactment fall into that category enactment not being this just this unforeseen event that occurs, but enactment being an ongoing generative process. And also the the renewed interest in field theory, which is international. And this whole notion that began uh, chiefly with Ferenczi but was developed by the Beringers and others, that there's this field that's created between therapist and patient that includes all manner of conscious and unconscious feelings, bodily responses, fantasies, and dreams. It's consistent and ongoing throughout the relationship. And while it brings the unique attributes of each person and history, they also the relationship itself is unique, as all relationships are. But the thorny problem remains of what do we select to express? What do we choose to explore with the patient? I was wondering if you could explain, and I know this is a big question, but if you could explain what countertransference is and how we think about it differently now than we might have 100 years ago. The countertransference are the, the therapist's feelings toward uh, and judgments about the patient. The old classical psychoanalytic idea was that once you had had your own personal treatment, you would not have strong reactions to your patients, that you would constantly keep this evenly hovering attention, you would be calm and above the fray. So that a patient would come in and repeat their issues and conflicts, and the idea was that the analyst or therapist would not be engaged intensely, let alone primitively, with any emotions. They would be observing and noting what the patient was feeling, and perhaps trying to get the analyst to feel. But that's really, you know, that's transcending human nature. That's literally impossible. But I remember as a young therapist, people talking about, you know, that, oh, I was analyzed. You know, I, I don't have any strong emotional reactions at all to my patients because I've been analyzed. And they convinced themselves that that was true. But of course, it, it couldn't, it wasn't true. It, it, it never could be true. And so thankfully, we came to realize that countertransference is not something that 
needs to be, you need to go back into treatment to get cured of, you know, it's just yeah. simply being human and having emotional reactions to the to the person that you're treating. That's the broader concept of countertransference, that which is just all of the feelings that you're having, and they're they're no longer categorized as pathological or unnecessary or undesirable. They just simply exist, and it's recognized that anyone who's acting as a therapist will have feelings about the person that they're treating, and even have intense feelings. That's countertransference. Uh, that calls to mind a, a phrase that I first read in one of your books, and that is countertransference dominance. And I interpret that as when we are working, when when suddenly I have become the patient and we are working more on my stuff than on the patient's stuff. That's not consciously known, typically. I mean, I, what I refer to as countertransference dominance is when the therapist dynamics and needs and repetition of the past dominates the treatment instead of the patient's. I mean, mm. ideally you want the patient's conflicts to dominate because you're there and they're paying you to help them to work through those conflicts. If your conflicts dominate, you are contaminating the experience for the patient. If, I mean, if that goes on over time. And, I mean, it, it certainly will happen from time to time that the therapist's needs, you know, are met more than the patient's or that the therapist's conflicts are dominating briefly. But my idea of countertransference dominance is where the patient has somehow threatened the therapist over time and the therapist is responding defensively and out of their own pathological repetition and they're determining the course of treatment of the treatment relationship rather than following along with what the patient needs and helping them to reveal and work through their issues. Hmm. That's what I call countertransference dominance. And usually, of course, those treatments do not end well. Back to this thorny topic of what, how do we use the countertransference? Do you have a place where you are on the spectrum of those answers, or has it changed? No, it, it, it actually has not changed a great deal. I think it's been, it's more nuanced and broader than it was when I first conceived of it. Mm-hmm. But I am still very much almost of a, almost a crusader in a sense for getting people to look, wanting people to look at the fact that when they are having intense feelings toward a patient, intense countertransference, and it doesn't just naturally flow and, and it creates a, a problem. Typically, it's sexual or aggressive feelings more likely than anything, aggressive feelings. You'll read in the literature where when people talk about countertransference, they'll say, I was feeling so frustrated working with this person or this person constantly criticized me or wasn't forthcoming with me, was hopelessly depressed. So then as a therapist, I fell into depression, frustration, anger, and Often that will go on for a long period of time. And I would say therapists in general are very uncomfortable, extremely uncomfortable with feeling anger and certainly hatred toward a patient. Mm -hmm. The longer they sit on it, just like with anyone, the worse it gets. And the more they withdraw from the patient if they don't talk about it. But when they're in the midst of having those negative feelings, it's very hard for, I think for all of us, to think about a way of constructively expressing those feelings in a way that will not be harmful to the patient, that will be helpful. Hmm. And so my position is that you need to look at basic affects, and when they continue over time and are, are especially are intruding, you know, or stopping the emotional engagement with the patient mm-hmm. and lead to withdrawal, or consistent rejection, internal rejection of the patient, that you have to find some way to express those feelings. And I think that's in contrast to the more popular notion these days of enactment, that if those feelings are there, the idea is that they're not conscious. This is where I really differ with many of my colleagues. The notion that we like to adhere to is that our negative feelings are unconscious. We're not aware of them. And then all of a sudden, one day, 
there's this, you know, kind of explosion, this unexplained event, often some type of negative comment to a patient, you know, or Mm -hmm. an argument with a patient of some kind of usually very negative exchange. And it's one of those exchanges that that people know it when they, after it happens and they go, the idea is they go, oh my God, what did I just do or what what was that all about? The whole idea is that they had no idea they were going to say or do that. And an enactment can also be a, a persistent, silent withdrawal also. But it, it, it leads to something where the, where the therapist or analyst finally says, you know, what am I doing? You know, this isn't good. But more often than not, it's some type of exchange, active exchange that's a, a conflict. Hmm. Then, because the patient and the analyst have had this open conflict, they're suddenly, you know, at, at odds with each other and somebody's hurt or angry or both, then there's the opportunity to work it through. That rather than dealing with our negative feelings as we have them and thinking about how we might express them before it turns into an enactment, you know, that doesn't typically occur from what I've seen. And that's what I advocate for. I think that certainly enactments are inevitable. You know, We can't always be aware of everything we're feeling. And I certainly have done something that I wasn't expecting or planning to do. You know, a sarcastic remark, for example. You know, mm-hmm. an, eye, an eye roll, you know, mm-hmm. with a patient, and that gets a very negative response. That's an enactment. So I think we, you can't possibly keep from having any enactments. And many patients stimulate them more than others do. And, and you have to be willing and able to have enactments. But the idea that you can't know your counter-transference, this is the key concept that's been promoted by Levinson and Rennick and many other people, that you can't really know your negative counter-transference until you have accidentally said something that you shouldn't or done something that you shouldn't. And then you become aware of it. I don't believe that's true. And if you look at all the case examples in the literature, I think you will, almost without exception, find that the the case description leading up to the enactment always involves the therapist saying, I was feeling these negative feelings and I had detached from the patient. That's surprising to me that someone would believe you can't know it until it explodes. Well, it doesn't make any sense, if you, really, if you think about it. We're trained professionals. We've all had our own treatment and yet we're really going to put forth the proposition that we don't know what our deep feelings are toward our patients until we act them out. You can't always prevent it, but the idea that you can't prevent it and that you should even embrace it, the foundation of this view is that, and it's partly, I think it's it's a misuse of neuroscience, is that with the recognition that we are constantly communicating uh, unconsciously with each other, that's that's the premise that it's based on. It's like, well, if I'm if I am communicating unconsciously to the patient, then I can't possibly be aware. Hmm. That's not true because it, it doesn't really take in the much of the other neuroscience literature on uh, levels of consciousness, and that things are constantly moving, full awareness to lack of awareness, and moving back and forth consistently in all of us. And it's, it's simply not true that all of our deep feelings would be unconscious and would remain in the unconscious realm. In her book, Seduction, Surrender, and Transformation, Dr. Maruda writes, How much does the patient really need to know about the analyst? And what type of information is most helpful? Many people resist the notion of self-disclosure, convinced that the analyst will inevitably create a persona that serves to defend against the patient's experience as much as anything else. Others fear that the patient will be burdened by what may amount to the analyst's thinly veiled attempts to get her own needs met. We used to believe that patients inevitably attempted to lead us astray. Now we seem to think that analysts inevitably will do the same to their patients. And I cannot help but wonder why we seem so intent on ascribing negative motivations and destructiveness to one or another members of the therapeutic relationship. Perhaps because we are all too familiar with the negative feelings we often harbor towards our patients. 
and thus worry that we will do them harm if we become more expressive. So I, I consider it a, a misapplication of neuroscience. Just because there is consistent unconscious communication doesn't mean that those things have never been conscious or aren't going in and out of consciousness on a regular basis. Well, and so this is a concept that I first started thinking about while reading, I think, The Power of Countertransference is that that we are always communicating even when we're not. Sure. I think that's yeah. undeniable. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think really the question then becomes is what do we say and where is the line? And I'm assuming it changes back and forth. How do you think about that in your own practice? I think that's especially true as much as I advocate for constructive expression of countertransference emotions. Mm-hmm. I am not a supporter of revealing erotic feelings toward the patient. Hmm. They're overstimulating and potentially too disruptive and frightening. And I think about this for a long time about why do I advocate for expressing other emotions hmm. but not erotic feelings? And the only conclusion I could come to is that, first of all, patients rarely ask that or want to know that. They might fantasize about it, but they don't ask, very rarely. And when they have asked, I've asked them if they wanted an answer to that, because when in doubt, I say, ask the patient, you know, if they really want an answer to that question. And only once did a patient want an answer, and when I answered, the, uh, which was true, that I was sexually attracted, if the outcome was negative. And so I gave, I started thinking more deeply about this. Why would the erotic not be compatible, you know, with the, with the therapeutic relationship? Hmm. I started to think about, well, in real life, what do people do who are unavailable to each other, but who are sexually attracted? They either don't talk about it, or if they do talk about it, once it's said, they either act on it, or they uh, discontinue close contact with each other because it threatens their marital status or, you know, whatever is causing them to be unavailable. Since since analyst and patient are inherently unavailable to each other sexually, the erotic, while I think it's a perfectly natural thing to feel and to have, I think once it's talked about out loud, then it threatens the stability of the relationship because it can never be acted on. And that's why I think most patients, they don't want you to hide your interest, you know, the smile or the noting that they look particularly good that day, you know. They want kind of want to get that admiring glance, and they want you to be accepting of their interest in you, their second look at you or that gaze that says, you know, they're finding you attractive. They don't want their sexual feelings to be rejected. They want them to be silently accepted. I don't believe most patients want to really know that you're sexually interested in them and that that would have a positive outcome. And that's why I put most of my emphasis on using the countertransference on basic emotions. The day before I spoke to Dr. Moroda, I had a patient of mine kick over the coffee table in my office. She was ranting about her friends, how they didn't take care of her in the way that she took care of them and how she felt betrayed by the lack of reciprocity in their relationships. She got louder and louder and angrier and angrier as the tears began to fall, and in one big final push, she reached her most desperate point in her rant and reached out her foot and kicked over the coffee table, sending coasters all over my office and my glass of water across the floor. She immediately expressed her sense of shame. As she got up, and turned the coffee table back upright and started picking up coasters and apologized as she asked me if I was okay. And I responded, Yeah, I'm okay, but I think we're done for the day. She apologized again, and I said, I believe you, but I think we're going to have to discuss it next week. She looked forlorn as she picked up her bag and left the office. Because I'm very reluctant to use the word love as well. Mm. Because sexual desire, love, those are broader concepts that bring in a lot of different emotions. 
I try to stay with basic emotions, fear, hate, envy, jealousy, frustration, anger, and stay further away from the more complex combinations of emotions. Love is too overwhelming for the patient to hear that expression. Yes, I think too that patients wonder what love means and does it mean something erotic and it it can be burdensome. So, you know, I hear what you're saying as what's actually useful about our countertransference to the patient. Yes, and I wrote about this in the early 90s. I think it was the first time I wrote and presented about emotion and, and it was the same time that I was exploring the literature on affect and neuroscience, I, I came upon this just through experimenting, you know, in my own practice. And I thought, well, if if my experience is more universal, not idiosyncratic to me, there should be some support for it in the literature. So I started reading more in the attachment literature, affect literature, uh, neuroscience literature, and was happy to discover that Yes, in fact, according to the neuroscience literature, intense affects are almost always conscious over time. So that supports my notion that we are aware. And also, you know, building on Stern's work and other people's work about attachment, infants learn how to manage, as Crystal says, they learn to manage and express and name their emotions through the interaction with their caretakers, primarily their mothers. And that that parental role or caregiving role is to is to encourage and help them to name and understand those ethics. Like parents today say, they, they talk to their kids and they say, use your words, which is that parental training of helping children, of now teaching children to put a word to a feeling. And that's really very important. So none of us came out of that developmental stage perfectly, and many of the people we see came through it very imperfectly. And Crystal says all problems are affect problems. All mental illness is an affect-based problem. And that's why we used to say that someone has emotional problems because they have difficulty with their emotions. And most of the people who come to see us have difficulty either expressing or knowing or reining in and working through their emotions or even sometimes even knowing them. Our chief role is really to facilitate that emotional experience. And to that extent, we have to perform that mirroring function of responding by, you know, first being empathic and creating a safe environment for the patient, and then over time building a more complex relationship where you're not just acknowledging and helping them to name their feelings, but you're also then responding with the deep feelings that they stimulate in you. And I call that completing the cycle of affective communication. I'm currently writing a new book, and in that book I am discussing what in the therapist's makeup creates a reluctance to express feelings to patients and particularly to express negative feelings. The the type of person who becomes a therapist was a peacemaker and was rewarded for being empathic and responsive and kind of making nice in their household mm-hmm. and their families. And children don't confront their parents with negative feelings and give them negative feedback. And I think that therapists remain stuck to some extent in that child role and that, that inhibits them from expressing anger to their patients. You've said a couple of things that makes it seem like we have to kind of verify with the patient whether what we're doing is helpful or and let them kind of steer the treatment. Are there times when we're more provocative, I guess, is the question. Well, I mean, I very much believe in in looking at the result. I mean, I, I, I write about that consistently, is look mm-hmm. at the results of an intervention to make the decision as to whether it was therapeutic or not, because you can't execute this perfectly, you know. Perhaps the patient isn't ready, and you try it out, and the patient is defensive and angry and doesn't want to hear it, so then you stop and you say, well, that, that person's not ready yet for this. Hopefully, you know, at one point they will be. So it's not so much a question of whether it was a helpful observation or not as much as whether they were able to hear what was intended to be helpful. Yeah, although if the, if the patient says it isn't helpful and gives you more detailed feedback about why, 
I would certainly examine that. Maybe there was something about the way you did it as well that was not mm-hmm. helpful. I very much endorse listening carefully to the to what the patient's response is. Sure. And there are a lot of people who who, who resist, you know, any type of feedback, negative feedback. Hmm. Sometimes you have to give it anyway because if you don't, the result will be that you will fall into this disengagement with the patient. Right. Like, for example, if, if a patient who has anger, let's say anger management issues, and is very aggressive toward you, you're getting angrier and angrier as he or she criticizes you, belittles you, or throws obscenities at you. You know, that's those, those are extreme, but criticism <laughs> isn't. Obscenities probably are. But if you are sitting there and you're getting angrier and angrier, you have to say something. If you don't, you will. it will end in an enactment. Mm-hmm. So even if the patient doesn't like it, sometimes you still just have to do it. Because at least then you have some, you're choosing and you have some control over it. Therapists fall into being very passive-aggressive, so they'll cut a session short or they'll make a patient wait for 15, 20 minutes in the waiting room or they'll reschedule them, or just simply be withdrawn and unavailable. And those are all counter-therapeutic activities. Sure. Sometimes you have to say, I know the patient isn't going to like either one of these. I'm not going to really win in this sense, you know? So what am I going to choose? Am I going to be passive or passive-aggressive, or am I going to express myself in as constructive of a way as possible while giving this person negative feedback? I told Dr. Moroda about how I had handled my angry patient who had kicked over my coffee table, and she was very sympathetic to me and encouraged me, saying that I had held the framework of the relationship together and had not let myself lash back out at my patient. But it wasn't until a few weeks later that I realized that I had been very angry at my patient before the rant because I was feeling a similar lack of reciprocity in our relationship, similar to what she felt in her friendships. Not that I was there to be taken care of like she was, but I often had the feeling that our sessions were for her to rant at me about her life without any dialogue between the two of us. I had been feeling pointless, like I was simply a person who was there to listen and not to offer anything back. I wondered if her friends had a similar experience. I wonder if they felt that she was difficult to offer care to. When the patient returned to treatment, we talked through the previous week, but I wasn't aware even the next week of my own countertransference, and I wasn't able to offer that to her. I think my ability to stay in it with her despite her rage was valuable, but my later awareness might have been invaluable to her. More from Dr. Moroda on what we share with our patients. There was one woman I treated for many years, and... and quite successfully. She didn't want any negative feedback and she would come in and rail about her husband and how she would come home at night and she would be all agitated from having to hold all of her rage in all day at the office and then she would dump it all on him. And if he wasn't responsive or didn't want to hear it or was passive aggressive toward her, she would rage at him all night. I started pointing out to her, you know, you're making him responsible for your feelings. It's like you just dump them at the door on him. He's supposed to comfort you. He's supposed to know the right thing to say. You know, and I said, that's not really reasonable. And she would rage at me and say, so you're you're against me too. You're just with him against me. And you're going to take his side. And I, And I just kept repeating, no, that's not the issue. And then when she would do that with me in sessions, I would give her that feedback. I would say, she would say, can't you just be more comforting? Can't you just, like literally, she, I, I, she would say, can't you just say poor baby? And I said, no, I can't. That's not my job. That would be completely inauthentic if I just listened to you and said, oh, you poor thing or poor baby. It would be emotionally dishonest and it would be irresponsible. That's not my function as your therapist. And how do you look back on those interactions now? Oh, I think that, I think they were. There was no question that they were very helpful over time, even though she didn't like hearing them, because she so mm-hmm. desperately 
wanted to be rescued by someone else. What led you to kind of stay steady? Was it just your sense of authenticity and grounded in that? It was both my sense of authenticity and also the fact that when I, knowing that she was not going to be receptive, when I held it in, inevitably there would be some type of enactment. She always sensed when I was disengaged or disapproving and then she would then she would really attack me and then I would get defensive or, you know, be sarcastic back or critical of her in a way that was not therapeutic. So I learned over time that her anger demanded attention and her desire to be rescued. And there was no way around telling her things that she didn't want to hear in the moment but that were therapeutic. And she ultimately did, you know, extremely well. It was a very successful treatment. Toward the end of her treatment, she was apologizing to her husband for what she had done for decades with him. She said, you know, this man was a saint. She finally developed an observing ego, and she was in her 50s, you know, that capacity to see herself more realistically. And she finally stopped with all the demands and and learned to contain herself and she, with difficulty, of course. It was not an easy path for her. But she told her husband, I am so sorry that I treated you so badly for so many years and made made these dem- these unreasonable demands on you. It seems like there's a lot of people that would storm out and not come back. Well, interestingly, I've never had that happen. You know what I always say when I, when I do speaking engagements? And I always say, they're paying us to get a perspective and to say the difficult things that no one else will say to them. People need feedback. People are stimulating other people. People who get across the board often get negative reactions. That's not lost on them. They typically come in and tell us, I don't get along well at work, or I can't keep a job, or I'm having trouble in my marriage, or I can't even sustain a relationship. I want to get married and I can't because I can't maintain a relationship. So they set the stage right away typically by letting the therapist know, these are my problems. I don't get along with people. I have anger issues. They don't state it in that way, of course, but they reveal it usually early on. And that should be a cue to the therapist to know this is going to be a tough case. I'm going to have to give this person feedback and express negative feelings in order to help them. Not to retaliate against them, not to put them in their place, but to be authentic with them and help them so that they can then learn to rein in those and manage those emotions. Well, and it's very easy to imagine that woman going through the rest of her life without anybody giving her that feedback or that experience of her. Quite frankly, I mean, we don't like to use diagnoses anymore, but I think the low success rate with people who've been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder is because you have to be extremely firm and regularly give feedback to people. They do not take it well, typically. But in every case, I've had people say, thank you. I really needed, I didn't like hearing that, but I needed to hear that. I think the problem is people wait so long and they're so angry, they're thinking very negative, critical things and even feeling sadistic, you know, wanting to, wanting to let the patient have it. And if you do that, of course, that's not constructive. That's not helpful. And I think all of us go there at times in our heads, but then I say, well, don't, don't express yourself in that moment when you're really angry and want to, want to strike back at the patient. You know, go home, think about it, and formulate some honest, authentic expression of your anger and negative feedback that isn't going to be punitive and unhelpful. Do you think that there that therapists are an uptight bunch? Yes. <laughs> the short answer is yes. I think I think that we are overly, completely overly invested in thinking of ourselves as good people. Hmm. And that's why we're so shame prone. It's making mistakes is a source of shame. Part of the reason we can't express negative feelings to patients who need to hear it is because we're ashamed of having them. To my mind, the preferred mode of feeling for most therapists is neutral or positive and accepting. And that's why I, I, I don't like the over-application of Winnicott, you know, that we're supposed mm-hmm. to be these 
that we're supposed to be these nurturing, good parents and that we would never hate a patient. We would never wish a patient ill, you know. We would mm-hmm. never experience schadenfreude if, if an obnoxious patient got taken down a peg or two. That That's not true. It's just humanly impossible. We are prone to the same feelings as any other human being. And the idea that we could transcend even the basis, most primitive human emotions, because we're trained therapists, that's folly. And it, it only leads to inhibition, guilt, and shame. Dr. Moroda's new book that she's writing right now is advertised on her website as coming in 2019 from Rutledge. And the working title is The Analyst's Vulnerability. Her website tells us, in this book, Dr. Moroda challenges analysts to take a more active role in facilitating the treatment. She favors an approach that focuses on feedback and confrontation, as well as empathic understanding and acceptance. Essential to this task, and the thesis that runs through the book, are analysts' motivations for doing treatment and the gratifications they naturally seek. Moroda asserts that an enduring blind spot arises from clinicians' ongoing need to deny what they are personally seeking from the analytic process, including the need to rescue and to be rescued. She equally seeks to remove the guilt and shame associated with these motivations, encouraging clinicians to embrace both their own humanity and their parents, rather than seeking to transcend it. To me, that's so refreshing to hear and to talk about. It's not spoken, it's just in the air, and I think it's each individual person's own sense of high expectations for themselves, but I feel in our professional spaces like this atmosphere of pressure to like not be human, and that seems so counter counterintuitive to what we actually do. Yeah, to me, the to me, the, if we want to have an idealized goal for the for therapists, it's not to be these human beings who are above the fray and above you know, negative feelings or pettiness or jealousy or envy. It's that we would be, our idealized goal would be that we would be so aware of those feelings and accepting of them that we could, we could navigate them, you know, with some ease on a day-to-day basis. There's almost a narcissism in that, it seems like. We hold our work in such high regard. Yeah, and some of the recent literature is, really supports that view We are not humanitarians. We are not saints. Hopefully, you know, we're all we're all flawed people, and that's what I say to my patients. You know, we are all flawed. It's interesting how we can talk about sacrifice, but when it comes to talking about fees, we're much more willing to talk about framework and holding the frame. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, you can't. I mean, look at all the people like Hirsch and his uh, coasting in the countertransference where he confesses to his own, you know, seeing too many patients and keeping them too long for the money. And he said he doesn't know anyone who hasn't done that. On one hand, many therapists are seeing too many patients per day, you know, working from early in the morning to late at night, putting in more hours than is humanly possible to do and be effective, Mm -hmm. and making large sums of money, and then we want to portray ourselves as saints. It's just silly. What brought you to this work? I was uniquely empathic as a child. Hmm. And I noticed not only was I very attuned to my mother's feelings, I think most of us had mothers who were in distress in some way when we were young. that overdetermined our vocational choice. For my mother, she lost both of her parents when I was two, within six months of each other. And she was foreign. She's from Australia. In those days, they didn't even make telephone calls because they were so expensive. She got a letter two weeks after each one of them died saying that they were dead and buried. And she ended up feeling very lonely and sad here in the United States. She didn't confide that in me. She knew better than to do that. But I read her emotions very easily Hmm. and always felt her sadness and wanted to make her feel better. Although the opposite of that was that she was also had a great sense of humor and was very playful. So 
so that I had the opportunity to be successful with her in a sense, you know. And it, it wasn't always me comforting her. She also could be, was a very loving and comforting person. But I was very aware whenever she was off, whenever she was sad or not herself or not that playful, emotive person. And mm-hmm. I would try to bring her back to life. And usually mm-hmm. successful. So I think that over overdetermined my vocational choice. But I even noticed with other people, other children and adults, that I could almost telepathically read their emotions. And it to the point where it even kind of scared me at times. That I could kind of see inside of them. And I came to realize over time that this was a valuable asset. And that it, when I was just in grade school, I became aware of Freud and psychoanalysis and started reading some Freud. And I was curious about my dreams, and I read Interpretation of Dreams when I was about 12 to try to analyze my dreams and my friends' dreams. And I enjoyed it. I thought, gee, this is something I'm really good at and I find intellectually fascinating. So from the time I was about 13 or 14, I wanted to be a psychoanalyst. You don't often hear that story. Especially since my parents weren't educated. I had to hear this by just by reading and being, you know, in the world. My parents were not educated, so there weren't all these books, and there was no Freud in the house, or, you know, my parents weren't mental health professionals. They did not have degrees. You're obviously from the Midwest. I wonder if culture and geography has influenced what seems like a more working class approach. Well, that's a good question. I think, I mean, definitely there was no psychoanalysis growing up. I grew up in a small town south of Milwaukee, Racine, Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. and there was only one psychiatrist in the entire city. And everybody knew who he was because he was the only one. (laughs) And no one was in therapy at that time. I I became aware of Freud because it was the heyday of psychoanalysis when I was a child. Hmm. And they put Freud on the cover of Time magazine. And I think it was 1956. And I was in grade school then. And I remember seeing that Time magazine and reading the story and discovering what psychoanalysis was and then going to the local library and checking out some of Freud's works. I can't really attribute that to being in Racine. If anything, I think it was extremely, extraordinarily unlikely that I would ever become a psychoanalyst coming from a small town in Wisconsin. Sure. But I would say that I I have a more of a matter-of-fact, pragmatic approach to being a professional. I, like I said, I don't consider myself an artist or a saint or a humanitarian I think of myself as a working psychologist and psychoanalyst whose professional duty it is to help people with their problems. And if I can't, then don't treat them. It's it's just really nice to hear someone that I respect and have read say like that it's natural to feel those feelings, that it's human and that we're not saints and that we're not perfect and nor should we expect ourselves to be. More importantly, we don't have to be. In fact, the opposite, because the patient is having these problems, as I said, with other people, not just us. We are in a unique position to help them with that but in a way that they can't get help anywhere else. And we have to be willing to feel things we maybe aren't so proud of feeling to accomplish that goal. This is real-world stuff the allowance for the therapist to be a human, that's something that I really crave is the freedom to mess up and be human and have feelings and and constantly be reflecting on those things. Yeah, because it's, if you really want to do this work well, you you know, you have to do that. But I think from from the old days of psychoanalysis being so constraining, there's still that mm-hmm. element. You know, there's still that element of needing to constrain ourselves and the idea that we're supposed to deny and hold in all of our deep feelings toward our patients and we're not even supposed to think about them and talk about them with each other right and yeah that's very artificial responsibility has to be a big part of it as well 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, my huge thing is that we don't talk enough about our fiduciary responsibility to the patient. Mm-hmm. This whole idea that we don't have any skills or we shouldn't have any techniques, that just drives me crazy. Not hard and fast rules or victims, but just, you know, basic ideas about how a treatment works and how you proceed and what works and what doesn't. We just don't even want to talk about that at all, and we keep going into this whole thing that, with an act. Now we have really have no control because it's all unconscious, and we just have to go with whatever happens. To me, that's completely irresponsible. Every time I bring this subject up to a group of therapists, I can see this enormous resistance. Mm. And what I've come to believe is that we are all therapists to in part, to gratify our own needs. And we know that there's a path we need to take to get those needs gratified. And I think what I see is that people are saying to me, you can't tell me how to be. Hmm. And I said, well, I'm not telling you how to be. I'm just saying, can't we focus like on affect, on this and that? They don't want any guidelines of any kind because they are afraid it will impinge on their gratification. Mm. They're not aware of that. That's what they're really saying. I want to do it my way in a way that makes me feel good, which is often in line with this, you know, making me feel like a good person. Don't tell me I should express anger at my patients because I don't want to do that. Then I would feel like a bad person. Therapists are conflict avoidant, and that's not in the best interest of the patient. We're really screwed up people. <laughs> kind of. In talking to my friends who are therapists over the years, I know to speak about my background, it's, it's what's really unusual in my background is that I had a mother who leaned on me for support and liked it when I, you know, kind of took care of her emotionally. But as mm-hmm. I said, was also very loving and nurturing toward me. And the whole milieu in our household was that we should all be independent thinkers and express ourselves. And conflict was not avoided. It would appear that that's unusual in the background of most therapists. Wanting to talk about the really hard shit is really hard for a lot of us. <laughs> and feeling free to like mix it up. We serve a, a valuable function if we do it well. And I think that our greatest strengths and our greatest weaknesses compel us to be therapists. Karen, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thank you, John. Again, it's been my pleasure, and I I appreciate the uh, increased interest internationally, I've found, in in analytic thought around, and I hope that that continues. Thank you. This has been Between Us. Our show is produced by myself, John Totten, and Mason Neely, who also composes our music. If you like the show, make sure to find us where you find podcasts and subscribe. If you can, leave a review on iTunes. Also find the Between Us Psychotherapy podcast original soundtrack on iTunes to own some of our music and support the show. If you can, find us on patreon.com slash between us to become a supporter for future episodes. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And say hello. And until next time, take care. <laughs>